Hey, good morning, citizens. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking at uh, bits and pieces of most of this chapter, so I'd love for you to look at it with me. Let me begin by reading a few verses right from the middle of the chapter, starting in verse 15. It says this, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So you can see even from those couple of verses there that this is a technical chapter, all right? And it's almost like it's uh, part two of a message I did a few weeks ago. Because in chapter 5, if you'll remember, he talked about this person named Melchizedek. And then he pauses the conversation and says, listen, you guys are not mature. You're not moving towards maturity. So I can't take the time to explain Melchizedek to you. He gives them a warning saying, move on to maturity because you need to understand the gospel and the significance of it. Then chapter 6 and the assurance and the oath and all the things that Dustin talked about last week. And now it seems like he's cooled off a little bit or maybe he's changed his mind because he's coming back to Melchizedek and to this person in the Old Testament that for us is a, a bit of a mystery. Um, it's, it's a great distance between what the writer is talking about and where we are today. So like on a normal Sunday, it takes work to even understand um, the gospel through the lens of the first century, the early church, because that's 2,000 years of history. Man, there's a, there's a lot of distance there between us and the first century church. But now we're talking about Melchizedek. And this is going back to, we'll see, back to David's time and then even all the way back to Abraham's time. So that's another 2,000 years. So we are talking about a spread of 4,000 years. So this takes effort for us in our modern day and age to understand, you know, what is the author actually getting at? What is he saying? Now, for the for the hearers of this, the first hearers, the Hebrews, it made sense. Remember, the context is these are Jewish Christians who are struggling with their faith. Persecution is either coming or is there already, and they're feeling the pressure of being a Christian in the Roman world. The temptation is, man, let's go back to Judaism. Let's go back to what we're familiar. And so he's using all kinds of Old Testament arguments to convince them. And that makes sense because that was in their wheelhouse. That's what they understood. But for us, it's more distant. And so when we think about what he's trying to communicate here, we think about things like the, the tabernacle. We think about things like the priesthood. We think about the sacrificial system. All these things are uh, unfamiliar to most of us. Um, even to those of us who've studied the Bible for a long time. So in chapter 7, 8, 9, and even into chapter 10, he's going to be speaking about the Old Covenant, all right? So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, this will uh, brush up your knowledge. Um, maybe if it's something that you've stayed away from, it's too complicated. This might be, these next few sermons might be a little challenging just to communicate and understand what is actually going on here. Because the Old Covenant was this covenantal relationship that God had with his people Israel. 
And what it was was a way for God to be in relationship with his people. And it centered around the tabernacle, God's presence coming down to be in their midst. It centered around a priesthood that would make sacrifices for people so that there would be um, a mediator between God and the people. So picture it this way. You're a family or maybe you're the, the father of a household you commit sins either willfully or you commit sins without even knowing it. You just wrong people. You do things wrong. Well, the, the law in the Old Testament would say, okay, there's a remedy to that because you now are separated from God and you're bringing a stain to the community around you, which actually disconnects the community of God or the community of God's people from God. So you are going to bring a sacrifice. You're going to bring some sort of animal a priest is going to help you decide even what kind of animal is going to be appropriate. Then you're going to lay your hand on that animal. And you're going to acknowledge that you've done wrong and that that animal is taking your place. Then the animal would be killed. His, its blood would be spilt. And its carcass would be burned as an offering, um, as something that would pay your sin, your debt, to God to make it right for you to have a relationship with him. This is what they were familiar with. This is what the Jewish Hebrews had in mind when they thought about a relationship to God. And now the author is saying there's a new way. There's a better way. There is a way that is actually brought in that Jesus is actually accomplishing uh, a more fuller, a better way to have a relationship with God. And he starts by talking about the whole priesthood system and that there's this priesthood, this new order that is under the, the priest of Melchizedek. So, let's just look at verse, in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, it says this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So he's introducing that in chapter 5. Now we come to chapter 7, and we see in verse 17, it says, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So who's this Melchizedek person that has a new kind of priesthood that Jesus is a part of? Well, Melchizedek actually only shows up three times in the Bible. That's it. Two times in the Old Testament, and then the third time is here in Hebrews. So if you want to look at it yourself, you can. In Genesis chapter 14, this is the first time where Melchizedek shows up. So in that chapter, there are a bunch of city, kind of city-states that are ruled by kings. And a few of them band together and try to go against a few others. So you've kind of got these two warring sides of a collection of kings on either side. And in the midst of that, one of the kings that is... is in the mix is the king of Sodom, all right? And that, that, that kingdom grouping actually ends up on the losing side of the other kings that are battling them. And so what does that mean? That means that the winning side gets to take everything, right? They can take their possessions. They can take all their weapons. They're going to kill most of the men that are fighting men, at least. They can take their wives. They can take their kids. They can take their animals. And they'll take any other of the men who are there who weren't in battle. So when that happens, what Abraham finds out is that Lot, his nephew, is taken as the, the bounty, as the spoils from Sodom. And so he's been taken captive. 
So in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, it kind of it introduces us to this Melchizedek. Okay, it says this in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And verse 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right. The second mention that we see of Melchizedek is a thousand years later in the Psalms. It's a, it's a psalm written by David. And so Psalm 110, verse 4, one little verse says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David is writing, if you look at the psalm, David is writing this prophetic psalm of a future, a one who would come in the future. And he says, this one that's going to come, you'll actually be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's it. Two references. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then we come to Hebrews here. Why is this so important? Why is the author using these two passages to explain to the Hebrews the significance of Jesus as it relates to the old covenant and ushering in this new covenant. The reason is, and we've said this a few times, he's actually using the Old Testament to prove his case because he knows that the things that he's saying are difficult for them to take in. Like these are earth-shaking truths that he is trying to instill in them. They are deeply in love, maybe um, have a romantic memory of the legal system, of the law. It's still something that Jewish people today love. If you think of Orthodox Jews in Israel or even in places like New York City, they are just dedicated to the, to the law, to the Torah. They even love the idea of the Temple Mount. So they pray there with, with like religious fervor. There's even plans all made up already for building a, a second temple and whether or not that would usher in a new age of sacrifices that's that's something to be debated but there is a a longing and a connection that Jewish people have with the Levitical law and the Torah and the sacrificial system that God has put in place so what the author here is going to talk about is going to rattle them and so he wants to not just give them these ideas, but he wants to show them. He wants to make his arguments through the Old Testament, actually, saying that this thing that I'm going to tell you about, this new covenant, this new priesthood that is coming, it's not new. It didn't just come up in, you know, AD 30 after Jesus was around and his ministry was going. This is something that God has been doing long before then. So looking at the two texts, we, we can actually use chapter 7 to help us understand what is going on. And so in the, in the Genesis text, we see that the author here is trying to show that there is a, a new and unique priesthood that is set up and that was, it was there ready to go for, for a very unique, specific person to come and fulfill and to be a part of. And this is what he calls the priestly order of Melchizedek. 
All right, so this character that we're introduced to in Genesis 14 is this one who brings this new priesthood. And if you look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we can actually see the reasons why Melchizedek is connected to Jesus. Let's quickly read these here. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation in his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. Salem meaning, uh, you know, also means shalom or means peace. That is the king of peace. Okay, he says it there. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So he's doing... He's literally doing exegesis for us from the Old Testament. He's helping us understand what the Old Testament story actually means. So it means a number of things. It says that, that Abraham was blessed by this one. Okay, so Abraham, this father of their faith, is blessed by this one. Abraham gives a tithe to him. So Abraham felt um, that this one, this Melchizedek, was superior to him. So he gives a tithe to him. His name is King of Peace, which connects him even to Jesus. He has no genealogy. So there's no like lineage that he's coming from. You can't pin him down to one thing. He is like, we don't know like his beginning or his end. And then he says at the end there in verse 3, that he resembles the Son of God. So some people have even wondered, some theologians have wondered, is this a pre-incarnate uh, person who is actually Jesus in the flesh before his earthly ministry, and, and that's debated. But what we do know is that the author here is saying he resembles the Son of God. He is a, he's a representation of Christ. And so he's saying before the little Levitical law, all the way back to Abraham, there was this priesthood that existed that was ready to go. It was just waiting for its fulfillment in the the perfect one that would fulfill it, which is Christ. He says it's been ready to go. It was there and it was perfectly suited for Jesus. Then he goes on to talk about this Psalm 110. Okay, so the other reference, he says, here's the other reference to Melchizedek. This is in Psalm 110. And here you can imagine David, thousand years after Abraham, part of the kingly duty was to read the, the Torah, to study it. And David also probably read through Genesis and he comes to Genesis chapter 14 and he reads those verses about this, this priest who had come after the order of Melchizedek and it clicks for him. He's like, there's only one who could do this. This would be the son of God who would come in the future, the, the Messiah, the Savior. And so he writes those words. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is what David is talking about. David in verse 13 and 14. The author here actually explains a little bit more because it's, it's kind of, um, this is where it gets a little bit confusing because the priests were coming from the order of Levi, from the tribe of Levi, and the kings came from Judah. And they knew that priest couldn't be king, and king couldn't be priest. And Saul even tried that once in 1 Samuel 13 and was rebuked for it. 
you remember, he was a king, and he went in and made a sacrifice. He made an offering, and he was rebuked for that. And Samuel says, you can't do that, Saul. You are a king. You are not a priest. So in chapter 7 here, verse 13, the author says this, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So he says, this one that's coming with this new covenant is not going to be from the tribe of Levi. He's not going to be a priest like the regular kind of priest. He's different. He's from the order of Melchizedek. Then verse 14 says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. So here, this text from Psalm 110 verse 4, the author is saying, here's what's happening. We've got a perfect man who's coming and he's going to be priest and king in one. And this is different. This is new. This is not like the old way because the old way had priests from one tribe and kings from another tribe. This new covenant is brought in by one who is priest and king. He is both in one. It's new. It's a new, better way. And it's coming through this order called Melchizedek. This is why they needed to like really think about, okay, what is the gospel and what is the Old Testament saying? Because it was, it was kind of sitting there in plain sight, but not exactly. Now, I've been known, um, you can ask Liz, I've been known to miss things. You know, she'll send me to uh, go get something, some sort of, usually it's some sort of food or, or some, some item on a shelf and I can't find it. And then what does she do? She comes and it's sitting right there. Okay. And I think she gave me a card once or something. It was like a fridge full of butter and the guy's looking back saying, honey, where's the butter? Okay. It was like so obvious. That is me. And that's what the author is kind of saying. He's not trying to insult them. He's not trying to poke fun at them. He's saying, this has been sitting there in plain sight. It was there in the Torah. It was there. David saw it. And now we've seen it come to reality in the person of Jesus. And, and the fact of the matter is that the Levitical, Levitical law, the Old Testament law, could never do what they wanted it to do. So verse 18 says, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It just, it could never do what they needed them to do. They needed something better, something stronger. And that's what this new covenant is that comes with Jesus. This new kind of priestly system after the order of Melchizedek that is unique and different comes through Jesus. So after after taking this first section of chapter 7 to kind of unravel or to kind of help them understand of this new priestly system, he wants them to see that Jesus is a better way. Now, now, why should this be compelling to you and I? Maybe you're looking at this text today and you're like, this sounds like a problem for the Jewish believers there. This doesn't sound like a problem for me. I'm not tempted to look back to the Levitical law. I'm not even, a, I don't like that at all. I don't like sacrificial system. I don't even like seeing an animal killed, right? I don't want to see any blood spilt. We're not really used to that nowadays. And so this seems like a problem that is for them. And, and is this just like theology that we're supposed to understand? Or is this actually something that we face? The idea of law, even if it's outside of the Old Testament Levitical law, is something that we all experience. We might not think about it all the time, but we are all 
interacting with different types of law around us. Your neighbors, your coworkers, um, you and I, we all live under law. There's some sort of expectation of a right way to live and a wrong way to live. So you may even think of things like, you know, should I wear a mask or shouldn't I wear a mask? Should I lie or shouldn't I lie? Should I look at pornography or shouldn't I look at pornography? Maybe those examples you're thinking, those are no-brainers. Wear a mask. Don't tell lies. Don't look at pornography. But other people, they might, they might see differently on some of those things. There's, there's standards, their standards, their system of understanding the, the morality of the world is completely different. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he actually opens the book, first three chapters, talking about this idea of the law that people have, the law that they place on their own lives, and, and how it's interesting that it's not just a law that we see in the Old Testament, it's actually a law that we see in the regular world around us. He says this, Everyone has heard of people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. They say things like, how do you like it if anybody did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. It doesn't do you any harm. People say things like this every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people and children as well as grown-ups. Now listen to this paragraph. He says, Now what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. So Lewis is saying, we all have this like internal law that we live by. The things that we believe are right or wrong. Whether, whether you're a a Christian or not a Christian. There's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And we have people who are, are priests, you could kind of say, who help us understand the world around us uh, in the way that we believe the world should be. Romans 2 kind of affirms this idea in, in Paul's explanation of the gospel. In Romans 2.14, he says this, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So whether we're religious or we're non-religious, we are all under a law either a self-imposed law or a law that comes from others. And like I said before, we have our own priests. You know, if it could be someone like, uh, if you're an atheist, maybe it's a Richard Dawkins. He's the one who's helping you understand the, the meaning of the world. Or maybe it's, you know, a, a Jordan Peterson or a Glennon Doyle, or maybe it's an Oprah Winfrey. These are like the priests and the priestesses of the world who help us make sense of the world around us. They help us relate to the world and, and sometimes even to some sort of divinity, whether it's even the power of the universe or something, all right? And they all come with, all right, let's be clear, they all come with a law. They all come with a set of do's and don'ts to be made right within this own system of its, its, its own law system, all right? This is where the author should deeply makes sense to us as well, us non-Jewish Gentile people. 
And this is where the author, for, for them here and for us today, turns and says, there's a better way. There's a better covenant. There's a new covenant that has come. And this is where he says, this is why Jesus actually brings a new and better covenant. How is it better? Let's quickly look at two things as to how this covenant is better. And we're going to unpack this actually over the next few sermons, okay? But he begins by saying, the reason that it's better is this. Firstly, is because it is eternal. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. All right, so Jesus is better, firstly, because he lives eternally. He has conquered death. There's, there's no, like, end to what he's doing, right? So in the old system, in the old priesthood, the priest would serve for a while and he would eventually over decades live out his life in service and would die. And then a new one would have to rise up and would have to come and begin that whole process all over again of representing the people. Same thing in, in our world today. The priests of our world, they come for a season, 50, 80, maybe they live to 100 years old and then their time is gone and a new one rises up, all right? Jesus is unique in that the new and better covenant that he brings is connected to him and it's eternal. His life is eternal. It's never ending. So his covenant is connected to a life that goes on forever. It is infinitely greater than the one that was connected to earthly human people. All right, so his goes on eternally. No human lives forever, but Christ's work of of mediating of being the go-between is unending it's eternal so not only is it eternal but it's also a work that is perfectly done look at verse 26 26 says this for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself so jesus is unique in that his his representation for us is done in perfection he's not like like the author here is saying the the high priests who were there the priests that were working they had to actually cover their own sins they were weak and that they sinned as well. Their motives were off. They did things that were wrong. Okay? You think of our modern day priests today. Their lives are not perfect. Right? The people that we look to in society are, um, they have problems as well. We live in a culture now that keeps rising up of people who are leaders who have moral failures and, and those who follow them are dejected and discouraged. It's because they're human. All of us who are human are imperfect. Jesus, on the other hand, stands in our place perfect, holy, unstained by the sin, unstained even by us who, when we come near to him, he is not stained by our faults and our problems. He stands ready to take us in, to mediate for us in perfection. So his work is eternal. 
and his work is perfect. Just think of the way that that should alleviate the pressure on us. Because we are not the ones representing for ourselves. Another person, like a, like a cleric or some sort of personality who has flaws, is not representing for us. Jesus is the mediator. He goes between us and God. He is eternal. He is perfect. So the result of the new covenant is this, and let's, let's conclude with this. The result of the new covenant is a much better much more effective covenant, and it's this in, in verse 25. We had just skipped over it. Chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you, did you catch that there? He's able to save to the uttermost. He can go the distance. He can save to the uttermost at Christmas time, if you were here, most of us got the book uh, Gentle and Lowly, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read it or not, but in there, uh, in chapter 8, he spends that whole chapter talking about verse 25, about this idea of going to the uttermost. And I, let me just end here by reading a paragraph that Dane Ortland writes on page 82. He says this, Christ doesn't merely help us, he saves us. This may seem obvious to those of us who have been walking with the Lord for some time. Of course, Jesus saves us, but consider how your heart works, and, and my heart for that matter. Do you not find within yourself an unceasing, low-grade impulse to strengthen his saving work through your own contribution? We tend to operate as if Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save, for the most part, those who draw near to God through him. But salvation belongs, sorry, but salvation, but the salvation that Christ belongs is complete. Let me read that one more time. The salvation Christ brings is complete. This new covenant is one that says the work is done. This is not like the old law where we have things to do, we have commandments to keep. This is one that is done. This new covenant is a completed work. It is a work, whether you are religious or irreligious, the, the work that you want to do to kind of make yourself look good before God isn't necessary. That work has been done by Christ. He is the mediator. Christ is the new and better covenant, and it's only Jesus who can fulfill that. So today, rest in, remember we talked about rest a few weeks ago, rest in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf and mine as our mediator before God, who lives eternally and perfectly fulfills all that needs to be done in our place.